Hello and welcome to another episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my intrepid, inscrutable co-host, Teos Abadia. I don't know what those words mean, so no. I'll just let you uh, go from there. Well, allow me to go to my shelf and pick up my dictionary. And yes. uh, I don't have a dictionary yeah. on my shelf. But, uh, <laughs> but I do have snow outside, and I spent today shoveling, which is a record in Oregon for uh, April. That's not happened before, apparently. Yeah, I'm looking at the you know, 60 degree weather and sun outside my door, which is very rare. So I am, <laughs> I am very happy to let you borrow our Western New York weather for, for the spring. Uh, I'm sorry. Kindness. Yes. Yes. I'm sorry. You lost power. Uh, yeah. It I, came back though. Sometimes these things last like five days or even longer. So I was really happy to have same day power restoration. That's, that's amazing. And we will count our blessings for whatever blessings we have. But one blessing we do have is D&D. And we have some yeah. D&D news to share with everyone. You like free things, don't you? I love free stuff. I love free stuff, too. I love free stuff so much that I went and got the free Roll20 version of Lost Mine of Fandelver. And you, too can do that until April 30th. So we have a link in our show notes to the Roll20 free version of Lost Mine of Fandelver that you can get on Roll20. Not only do we have that link, we have a link to Teos telling us exactly how to get this free version of Lost Mine of Fandelver because it's not as smooth as you might think. You have to follow a couple of steps. So Teos has taken to YouTube and created a video walkthrough showing you exactly how you can get to this free package on Roll20. And the really important thing is you have to create a game that has it in there. Right. Otherwise it'll vanish. You can't just claim it. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't know that, but I listened to Teos's video and he told me that I had to create a game and therefore I created a game. And if you are new to D&D or new to Roll20, there is also a link in our show notes to a video for uh, showing new players how to start with D&D and how to get started on Roll20. So all of those things are available to you in our show notes. We hope you enjoy them. I know that I'm going to enjoy maybe running the Lost Mine for somebody uh, since I now have those, uh, the access to that on Roll20. And I love all the tokens and things like that. They're super useful in those maps. That's great stuff. Yep. Yep. All good stuff. Speaking of good stuff, MCDM has a Kickstarter that dropped today. As of this recording, if we had recorded at our normal time, we wouldn't have been able to announce this, but we can. So thank you, day old. Thank you, Snow. (laughs) Thank you, day old Snow, for allowing us to talk about the MCDM monster book, which is called Flea Mortals. There's a comma in there. So it's not a game about sentient fleas. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I was hoping. But instead, we get this book, which is. 300 monsters for 5e and it contains a bunch of other stuff not only does it create these monsters but there are special action oriented monsters that have villain actions that can take place when it's not their turn Um, matt has talked about this on his youtube channel so if you uh, are interested you can go check it out there 
There's variations on monsters we already know, such as the Goblin Assassin and the Goblin Sniper. Um, for 4E, they did this, making many different kinds of uh, monsters. And we're going to review a 4E adventure today where that uh, comes in handy. So I, I found the uh, synergy of this uh, yes. impressive. Yep. You can tell that they learned a lot from 4E in, this, in the creation of this book, which I think is neat. Yep. Uh, there are, they move away from the spell list, giving different fun options for using spell-like abilities in monsters. Uh, there are rules for minions, for companions, for retainers, and so much more. 4E used roles extensively to tell you what kind of monster this was, whether it lurked in the shadows or where it stood up and fought face-to-face. And it's already at over $300,000 only after only a few hours. So you can tell that it is going to be good. Uh, and I love playing that game of, oh, I wonder what it'll be at now. And, and so I was like, oh, it's easily going to have been above 100. And I, I just looked and it's at 510, basically. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so unbelievable. Within the last hour or so, it has gone up over $100,000. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, doing, it's doing very well. Uh, I'm not worried about it funding. Let's put it that way. And we got lots of time, so it it will easily be a million dollar Kickstarter. We'll see how much uh, how much higher it goes than that. <laughs> yeah. uh, any other thoughts? Well, I mean, the only thing here, there's a preview. It's wonderful. I love everything about this project, uh, except for one thing that I'm going to get to. I love the people. Uh, I love the direction of this, the concept. I'm I'm excited to to someday own this, but. I just wish that MCDM could have been the bold company to move us away from Kickstarter. I think they have such a rabid following, such a good connection across multiple dimensions of YouTube and Discord and Reddit and all these kinds of different areas that they could have brought really uh, the majority of their audience along to any crowdsourcing, uh, crowdfunding platform, not just Kickstarter. And obviously Kickstarter has algorithms, but I think they could have easily overcome that and easily funded their project on any platform, which would have then brought huge attention and growth to that other platform. So I kind of wish that could have happened. Um, you know, we didn't, um, I think we, we, we didn't talk about the Gripner article last week, right? No, we didn't. Yeah. So I, I didn't put that in the notes. I think, notes, uh, I, th- I think I kind of forgot, but I was interviewed along with many others like James and Tricasso, uh, on a piece about this company that's trying to create a sort of NFT blockchainy bizarre thing and um it's a good read out there it's on gizmodo um and uh and and it's just there's so much reason to try to move away from these shenanigans and kickstarter is still saying they're going for it so yeah Yeah. it's just a problem we have to contend with yeah yeah it's 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 all interesting in terms of game design and we can debate you know different parts of that but when you are using a technology that is obviously trash and is basically used for human trafficking more than anything else in the world. Legitimizing that sort of thing in any way, it just, it hurts society as a whole. So, you know, whatever your thoughts on game design are, uh, until that problematic part of it is taken care of, it really doesn't matter. There isn't really much more to discuss. So, yeah, well said. Yep. So we will then move on to other news, which is the Demiplane is adding Marvel to its repertoire. So Demiplane is a site that brings DMs to games and to other gamers. And they're also 
going to become a, or already are, but will continue to become sort of a clearinghouse for the digital version of rules. Uh, this site is created by Adam Bradford. Uh, he is the, the force behind it, uh, along with other people from Demiplane. And Adam, of course, was the brain uh, trust for D&D Beyond. Mm-hmm. So uh, the same sort of setup that D&D Beyond gave us for D&D is being used for these other games. And Marvel multiverse role-playing game is being housed. The digital rules are being housed at the Demiplane Nexus. Yeah, and they just announced this uh, playtest is coming out, and they had said that this would happen before. It's something that can be a little contentious for fans for good reason, which is that they are saying, hey, here are the playtest versions. Uh, give us 10 bucks." And that extends to the partners. So Demiplane, who will have this upcoming playtest as a digital tool set, that's going to be $10. Uh, Roll20 also has the same tool set, and I think it's going to be the same price there. Um, so sort of, you know, it's it's a... It can be a little hard to say I'm buying this thing and then it will be no more and there'll be the actual thing I'll have to buy. Yeah. But it's also, hey, just $10 gets you and your group into playing it now and yep. maybe having a voice in it. So maybe that's totally fine. I, I tend to think it's fine. I think it's a valid approach. Um, it's been used by a lot of big companies. You know, Paizo has done it. Mm-hmm. Um, and many companies have done it in shakier ways than this. I think this is a fairly yep. open and you know approach as to what they're trying to do and why. Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, D&D with the D&D Next Play Test, most, you could get the rules for free, but they did put out a product called Ghosts of Dragon Spear Castle, which included an adventure and the latest version at that point of the D&D Next rules. And so, you know, you got something for your money that was different than just the, the play test rules. That's the uh, adventure where you wrote about half-orc dwarf hybrids, right? Uh, I... I did not write about them specifically, but they but were. They ended up in your adventure. They were definitely there. Uh, so you know, rock, rock on for that. I'm poking fun at you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, you, yes, you are. No, it's okay. I, you know, it's one yeah. of those things where yes, I contributed to the book, and for sure, the dwarks were in there. Uh, <laughs> and. We'll just leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. We'll just yep, leave it. Everybody, at that. check out Sean's finest work. Yes, Ghost of Dragon Spear. Yeah, I, Dragon Spear, Dragon Spire, Dragon Spear Castle. Spear. Yeah. yeah. So yes, I contributed a very small bit, bit to that. We'll, we'll leave it at that. Uh, Stranger Things season four trailer. It is. It is up. And Teos, what did you want to say? The big two words. I mean, Vecna confirmed. Back in the confirmed. It's not Spelljammer, but it's pretty close. Uh, it's, so there is, if you watch the trailer, uh, there is a kind of ominous, clear, I am the big villain in it. And it's like at the center of some sort of web of sinew or something like that. And has a deep, lich-like look and voice and, and all that. And, and so in an interview, the Duffer Brothers said that this is Vecna. Uh, so Vecna is the big bad. So yep. uh, that's going to be kind of cool. Interesting to see what kind of what kind of Vecna do they give us, right? Because they've given us a Demogorgon that is, you know, a plant creature, uh, abyssal plant creature. I don't know. Yeah. So you know, anything can go in terms of what it actually ends up looking like. But it looks pretty Vecna-ish. So yeah, we'll, we'll see what they do with it. It's interesting for me because you know, Demogorgon I, is Demogorgon a trademark of wizards. 
I don't know if that is something that they trademark, but Vecna. Right, or is it an ancient, right. sort of like Pazazu is an ancient Babylonian god. And exactly. became like the air god of yeah. layer one or so something. So I'm, I'm trying to think if, if Demogorgon was created by wizards directly or if it was right. from mythology. But Vecna, for sure, is a trademark of, of mm-hmm. Wizards of the Coast. So it is good to see that they obviously worked closely with wizards yeah. to, to get that. Um, and you can catch the trailer on YouTube. And wherever oh, can't wait. wherever you get your trailers. Where, yeah, and, I think it's end of May. I'm excited. Yep, yep May. Mm-hmm. It will be here before you know it, and maybe you won't even have snow. Yeah. Listener warning that when you watch this video, that song from, there's a song from the 80s that as soon as it starts up, you'll be like, oh God, this is going to be in my brain. And it will. It's in my brain right now, just mm-hmm. endlessly looping. I tried to watch it before we recorded because it just came out, and I couldn't get any sound because the sound was being used by um, by our recorder, <coughs> excuse me. And uh, so I escaped the, the earworm uh, for at yeah, least a bit. Very lucky. Uh, Hero Quest, we've been reporting uh, from the beginning when Hero Quest was uh, not kickstarted, but crowdfunded uh, <laughs> by, by Hasbro. Pulse. And yep, on Hasbro Pulse, Teos contributed a scenario to the new Hero Quest game. And now there is another scenario that has been given for free. Would you like to share with us about that? Yeah. A super cool guy and designer and project lead, Doug Hopkins, provides a new introductory scenario for the HeroQuest board game. And this is main, makes a few changes to the typical design of a HeroQuest scenario. So, for example, it's more than one page in length, which like, they've always been like one page. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they're also, they even talk about in the design uh, blog that they are trying out some new ideas and you know you don't do that unless you're going to do some more things right Right. so i'm really excited about what this means that you know clearly doug at least is working on on a a variety of scenarios we've had this is the second free scenario that you can just download from the site Uh, we've got a link in our show notes and clearly they're trying out some new ideas and new techniques so that's pretty cool i have the box sitting right here i'm staring right at it i haven't got a chance to play it yet but by golly, mm-hmm. at some point I am going to open that bo- box and play yeah. play this game. I, I need to. I, uh, I had to solo play it because of my family being so busy. But uh, that is another one that I've talked to my friends that, you know, as this pandemic, uh, I think is going to get back. <laughs> we will get together and yeah. run through a bunch of Hero Quest scenarios because I know another friend in my group also backed it. So we're all very excited to, to run through it and, and yep. just need to, you know, do that. Find the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could find the time to support a new product on the DMs Guild, Volo's Vetted Vendors, 20 Shops and Shopkeepers. This is a product by TM Van Dalen and authors that include Matthew Whitby, Jeff Stevens, and Joanna DeLune. Uh, they come together to create interesting and engaging shops that your player characters can visit. Locations have rich histories and ongoing plots, as well as interesting characters and fantastic features. And you got an advanced copy of this, Teos. Well, what yeah. did you think? Well, you know, and sometimes folks ask me to look at something and they, and they can be just great, right? Like they can just be great and, and they're fine. They're fun. But this was superb. This was another level up where as I read it, the concept for whatever the location was, was really cool. And then the execution of it is also really cool. Like it, it's it's useful. It's neat. It has things that are happening that are going to engage your characters and make them want to do stuff in this place, not just observe it and look at it and go, yeah, that's neat. All right, let me you know buy some rope and get out of here. 
there are things going on. And a number of fun things about it. One of them that I really like, there's a place that's under the sea. And it talked about how every now and then, because there's sort of dome of air, right? And then and you're in it, in that air bubble, shopping around, doing whatever. And it talked about every now and then a fish will fall through. And I had never thought about that before, but it makes perfect sense, right? That if you have a bubble of air, every now and then some critter is going to like push against it and end up flopping down on you. And I thought that was just, I I wrote them to say, this is so good. I love this. I'm going to use this forever in my underwater, you know, scenes where we're in an air bubble. Awesome. So that is available currently on the DMs Guild with a link in our show notes. And our last bit of news Eldritch Sands, a sci-fi-tinged 5e campaign by Florian Emmerich and Poison Potion Press, is available on DriveThruRPG. This is something that Teos will tell us more about. Yeah, yeah, I've I've had a chance to page through this. It's great, too. Um, The campaign is... Well, first, Poison Potion Press, you might know them from uh, their first release. I think it was Shore of Dreams. Really beautiful art. Really did amazingly well. Birds of Paradise is also gorgeous. It's all these avian sub-races you can play. Really cool. Um, And then Eldritch Sands now brings that tradition forward. It's really beautifully done. A lot of great authors who worked on this. Um, And it's doing very well in sales already. But it is a campaign world. And it's set in a place that is sort of sci-fi horror mix with fantasy as well. So it's a place ravaged by Eldritch Sandstorms. Everybody's sheltered into a dome of steel and neon. They use magic and technology to survive against the ravaged world and the dangerous machines, which are called, get this, mimics. Mm. (laughs) So (laughs) I love that. Uh, It's inspired by 70s and 80s sci-fi horror films, but with a strong fantasy underpinning. And one of the things they do is like you're, you're... you have the option of, for your class, making that actually be the Eldritch Tech suit that you use. Hmm. And they have fun names like, I don't know, I'm making these up, but like, I know one of them's Owlbear, but like, you know, Scorpion or whatever. And they represent sort of these creatures in some way as to what kind of capabilities you're getting while also fitting into the 5e role concept. Um, so you sort of suit up and go out and, and handle these things. Um, there are templates that allow you to modify monsters. Uh, really great locations, both inside the dome and outside of it. There are factions in the dome that make life there interesting and push you towards adventure elsewhere. So it's really um, a cool pick if you like this kind of, if you want to shake things up in your world, not just have plain old fantasy. This is a great product. Yeah, today in in the, the class I teach, we were talking about the classes in D&D and how they, in 5e D&D specifically, represent the tropes of you know different types of of people that you would meet in fantasy fantasy world like barbarians and mages and stuff and i love to see games that use the same uh rule set but push it so instead of being a trope for for the abilities of of certain people certain heroes your your class is a suit and those suits give you the same sorts of powers that a class would i you know i love to see those twists on the rules so I will, definitely, I will definitely be checking those out. Cool. So that's the news for this week. So what are we going to do this week, Teos? You know what I think? I think tell you're going to tell us. Oh, I'm, I'm going to let oh, you tell I'm, us. Well, I mean, I think this was actually your suggestion, which ended up being genius. At first I was like, wait, wait, are we going to skip 2E and 3E and go straight to 4E? And you were like, yes. And actually, it's a great idea because... 
it really brings into contrast the classic adventures we've been looking at that date back to the 70s and 80s. When you go to fourth edition, which is an edition that deliberately tried to kind of fix everything that we were complaining about, mm -hmm. then you just really see such a, a contrast, and that's kind of neat. Yeah, so yeah, so we were going to review second edition adventures, third edition adventures, but everything I was looking at, uh, you know, the obviously the art got better, the layout mm -hmm. got better, but the actual delivery of the content was very similar throughout all those throughout all those editions. Then we get to fourth edition, and as you said, with the change to the rule set came a change to the design philosophy, and I can tell when I suggested that we should look at the very first adventure for 4E, you were like, eh, really? Really? Well, and I actually misremembered which one this was. Okay. So I thought it was one that I I can say safely. I don't want to name it, but I, cause I, you know, but I, I don't like it. There's mm -hmm. the, and the one I thought it was. Um, but looking at this, and I either had not read it or I read it so long ago I'd forgotten it. I know I played part of it. Mm -hmm. um, I had forgotten what this is like, or at least in reading it, I, I came away with a very positive yeah. uh, feeling at, by the end of it. So the first 4E adventure was Keep on the Shadowfell. And that's what we're going to look at right now. Um, it gives us a glimpse not only into adventure design, but it gives us uh, a, a glimpse into what the designers of the fourth edition game thought were important in terms of what to, what to present to new DMs and what they expected players to do in this new game. And so Keep on the Shadowfell was published in May of 2008. It was written by Bruce Cordell and Mike Merles. Now, so this comes out in May of 2008. The three core books were not released until June of 2008, which means wow. that this, uh, this book had the basic rules in it. And so it was the first chance for players to see what the 4E rules, unless you were a play tester, what these rules were going to look like. And that makes sense because when we ran this, my group had been a 4E play test group. So mm -hmm. we had uh, tried it. Uh, we had all hated it and given mm -hmm. very negative reviews during our play test time. Um, so much so that we couldn't get everybody together to do the second super rushed play test that they uh, did. Like the, right. we just, there was people who were just like, I'm done with this. Yeah. Uh, but we did rally and try this. And I think that negativity sort of carried forward to the first combat, which was later actually eroded. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to look at this and that this came out, you know, before the books actually came out, mm -hmm. which is always a little dicey. But, but as you said, it shows that this adventure is like, a showcase, right? It's a, it's a, not just an introduction, but you're trying to sell people on the experience. And, and I th looking back at it now, I think it does so well. Yeah. Uh, and another fun fact. So this, uh, the core books were released in June of 2008. The fifth edition development was announced in January of 2012. So just four years yeah. after the books came out, less than four years after the books came out, uh, 5e development was was announced and it took obviously a few years right. for, for that uh, edition to to be released but uh, you know so six years was the lifespan of fourth edition and only two years after the f initial release of 5e uh, the D, D essentials package came out uh, with those books yeah, so, essentials two years before yeah yeah and and I mean Third edition had done six, uh, done uh, eight years, 
Yeah. Right. Cause that was 2000. Yeah. Um, so you can see just, I mean, it was, it was, uh, clearly not a success for wizards. And, and we've right. talked about this before. It, it's a super complicated question of what kind of success fourth edition was, right. um, you know, currently there are enough people playing it on roll 20 that it's actually quite popular compared to most role-playing games yeah. even now um, with how good 5th edition is. Um, and you see all sorts of people like, you know, Matt Colville at, at MCDM running a 4th edition game because he loves it so much. And and, right. and I love it. And, all, you know, you love it. So th there is a lot of love for it. And yet uh, it's complicated because Wizards is not in the business of making a good game. They're in the business of doing more than even launching a great game. They need, they crave mm -hmm. a level of success that isn't just about an RPG. It's about an RPG launching all these other things. Sort of like exactly. Marvel would not be satisfied doing just comic books. Right. Um, and so that's where 5th edition has clearly done that. 4th edition was intended to do that, and it did not do all those other things. And therefore, yeah. it was a failure. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and the scale they wanted yeah. from it. And, and now we are seeing, as you said, more people going back and playing fourth edition and using the, the design elements of fourth edition to make some fifth edition content that I think yeah. uh, will be interesting and most likely pretty good. Yeah, and I think that also if you look at the fourth edition designers, I was just listening to a fun podcast that was talking about this, but the, the fourth edition designers have written such great things and, and you go on and see things like say, um, how Rob Hainsu goes and, and works on 13th age. Right. And what a phenomenal that game is. And, and you can easily see that fourth edition would have been truly greeted as groundbreaking had it been called something other than Dungeons and Dragons. Oh yeah. But Absolutely. by virtue of being D and D it received all this criticism. And of course, internally it had all this criticism because it was being held up to such high standards. Anyway. <laughs> no, no. All of this is important to say, yeah. uh, you know, as we get into the book, uh, this particular adventure. Uh, so the adventure itself is two books, really. There was a 16 page quick start rule book that gave you all the rules, oh, 16 pages. Including five pages of pre or five pregens that told you everything you needed to play the game, and it was a good game. Uh, then there was also also an eighty-page adventure booklet and three double-sided poster maps. So I want to say this right up front: this adventure is a very, very good user manual. Uh, if 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 games are are games and role-playing games are role-playing games and what they do is akin to what a user manual would do. This is probably one of the best user manuals I've seen in terms of a D&D adventure. Yeah, and, and if you're curious, I don't think we said this, but you can get this free on the DMs Guild. Yep. Which is kind of amazing. Um, so if you want to, you know, jump on the DMs Guild and, and while you're listening to this podcast, you know, page through it, you can certainly do so. And that's kind of a fun way to do that. Yep. So... I feel like if even if I had never run D&D before in any of the previous editions or even role-playing games before, this adventure would make the game easier to run, especially in terms of the tactical uh, combat portions of the game. Uh, but they even have great storytelling and campaign management tips as you go, and it literally spells it out as you go. Okay, you finished this first combat. Now you're going to town. Here's what you should do. Here's what you should highlight. You know, right down to that sort of, uh, story flow advice 
is there. So, you know, kudos to Bruce and, and Mike for, for putting that together. And, you know, having done a lot of, read a lot of things by them, you can see their style in this, right. And mm -hmm. their approach in this and how they like talking to DMS and want DMS to succeed at running this. There there's a care and love in how they craft these, um, these advice pieces. That's really quite, it's really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so any, any other thoughts in general before we dig into the adventure itself? Yeah, now let's let's dig in. Okay, so let's dig in. So the adventure obviously is starts for level one characters because this is mm -hmm. the very first thing. And if you go through the whole thing, you end at hopefully level four. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the the rules themselves are in a separate packet, but it does give the game master some good preparation. So it does this funny, funny thing. It took me by surprise for a second, is it sort of lays out the adventure start. And, and then it goes into more rules. So I, when I got to the first encounter, I was looking going, where's the, where's the setup? I'm like, oh, right. The setup was the first thing I read. <laughs> uh, but the, the other thing to remember about fourth edition was it was very much encounter driven, very much encounter based. So a typical uh D and D adventure from previous editions or fifth edition reads more like a novel in that you get, mm -hmm. you know, the first encounter, it gives you everything. Then you move to the second, what they did for fourth edition, much of the time is they gave sort of an overview of what the adventure was going to be with maybe a one or two sentence description of an encounter then you would flip back and there would be a one or two or three or four page spread that had everything you would need to run that encounter, which while it eats up page count, it is so much easier to run at the table. It is. I, I have to say, I do not like that two part split, particularly the version that we saw in like uh, dungeon magazine or other DDI efforts. Yeah, uh, I, I really disliked having to sort of read things twice. And, and first of all, I did not like it from the pleasure of reading it mm -hmm. because it was duplicative and it yeah. broke up my flow. But also when running it, then I had to flip to another page to, you know, refer to what the point is and then right. get back to here. And then the combat thing would sort of be in that other section, but the resolution might not be. And so... That, yeah. you know, and I want to know everything because I, when I'm running, I want to have an eye on my resolution and on my introduction and, and yeah. link that. So it feels very good. And so separating that out. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> and, and my counter to that is you have to do that anyway. You have to do it with monsters and you have to do it with maps. What they did for the fourth edition encounter setup is they put the monsters and the maps right on that two page spread. So you didn't have to search anywhere for the monsters. You had the map right in front of you. Not only that, but it had the locations of the monsters for you. Yeah. Uh, so there was, yes, there's flipping, but there's always flipping. And I would rather flip sure. before and after the encounter rather than during the encounter. So, yeah, I, yeah. I hear you. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a, it, there's no good way to do it. There are just a variety of different, yeah. problematic ways to do it. And the, the question is, which problematic thing do you prefer? 
Yeah, I, I think is and, right. and starting with third edition, you get into stat blocks that you know can be half a page, and sometimes when they're the worst, yeah, a whole page or more than a whole page, yep. and that just wrecks havoc with everything, right? Versus yep. all like all the classic adventures we've been talking about, the monsters were not only on the page; they're in the paragraph because they're just there's yeah. nothing to them, right? You know, right? Yeah, generally, yeah. So and fourth edition monsters, especially at lower levels are small enough in the, even in the their stat block format in fourth edition to be able to fit on a page in a two-page spread they would have all the monsters you need the map and any text to to explain traps yeah. and and certain things so it was it was it was new and especially at lower levels it for me worked well yeah true uh, so this adventure gives you the rule summary lets you know you know what are the rules you're going to be using? Then we get several hooks. Uh, and these hooks, I think, do a great job of uh, working different kinds of introductions into this story. Why are you yeah, doing this say, adventure? Yeah, go ahead. Can I say something about that? In that, This is a pet peeve of me. Like, this may be something I blog about at some point. But, like, I love Wild Beyond the Witchlight. And I have to have, if I have to pick, which is a fifth edition, very recent adventure, mm-hmm. if I have to pick a pet peeve, it probably would be that the backgrounds are almost like separate experiences that don't unify the party. You know, some number of you could have been, uh, you know, uh, hands at the carnival. Right. In which case you would know everything, which sort of conflicts with the experience I'm trying to tell you about. Right. But then the other half of you are on this quest that is a fairly major important quest that drives sort of action and how you interact with things. So both of them are at a total odd, it, it, you know, cause you're allowed to do both. Right. You know, they don't mesh and, and these do a pretty good job of sort of being okay things. They don't intrude upon each other or contradict each other, which I like. And, and I think yeah. it's surprising how many times that's not the case in adventures, both in fourth edition and still in fifth edition. Yeah. Yep. So, so the three different hooks sort of, uh, set you up for why are you going to this place and it, you know it can be very very specific uh, you were all trained by one person and that person went off to this area and disappeared so you wondered what happened to this person and or their wife uh, sent you to uh, to see what's what's going on so you know all of that is available to you uh, Teos noted that it's weird because they give experience points awards for solving the problem, but each one is different in the experience points they give, even though you're doing the exact same adventure. That is and it's very random how you might get, you know, one hook or another, because that, that's one of the problems with these hooks is that you, you don't easily know like, Hey, what do I give, you know, Sue at the table versus Mikkel, you know, right. like I might give them totally different, hooks and one of them gets a thousand more experience for it but it was random you know and so that that just seemed strange to me but it's built on the quest system that fourth edition had so there's a sort of reason behind it but yep yeah yeah so you know pick, pick a hook they, they all work and whatever your party is most likely to um take to is the one you should use then we get the story background which is uh Shadow Fell. I think this was where Shadow Fell was introduced uh, in fourth edition. I maybe the, it was there in third edition, but fourth edition is where it really became prevalent. Uh, the Shadow Fell had a portal to this world uh, near this area, and 
the forces of good closed that portal and then built a keep. We could call it a keep on the Shadowfell, if you will, uh, to watch over it. There is a small town that grew up near the tower. Uh, then the, the, the keep fell, but the town remained. The portal, no one knows for sure if the portal is sort of lost to history. But in reality, there is an evil priest of Orcus uh, named Calorel who is trying to reopen that portal and usher in a new era of undeath. To, to the land and Calorel has gathered goblins and kobolds and maybe a couple other baddies to uh to help with the ritual in opening the rift yeah that's so, a good story premise yeah cool. very very you know keep it simple this is pretty simple mm-hmm. uh and and that's what you want with a new edition of the game you don't want too complex a story to bog down players mm-hmm. learning the rules but I also appreciate that though this is an introductory adventure, it's not caravan duty yep. where, you know, just a couple of goblins have been raiding the village. Please get rid of the goblins. This is epic in nature, right? Yeah. <laughs> not epic tier, epic storyline, right? It, right. It's cool. Like, end a rift to Shadowfell. Orcus and his yeah. minions are going to come in. Like, stop that. That's cool. Yep. And then you can build on that very well, uh, which they did with yeah. other uh, other adventures that followed. So the first encounter is an ambush on the King's Road. You get a nice poster map, which has become famous. I call it the Three Grave Road because it's got that (laughs) map with those three graves, random graves there. And it tells you exactly how to run this encounter in this two-page spread. They give you locations for where the creatures are hiding. Uh, A a very nice uh, little description, box text, um, to tell you how to... Uh, for the DM to give to the players. Very good instructions for the DM of how the monsters act, their tactics. The minions will run out first. The others will remain in hiding until they act, which means the characters will likely attack the minions first because they're the ones visible. Minions will fall because minions, that's what they did in fourth edition. And then the the greater threats step out and are able to do their cool things without being slain immediately. Um, So, you know, all of that is well, well, uh, well established. So I have to say, Sean, reading this, it gave me a longing for writing fourth edition yep right for designing it and writing it and and also playing it and running it because it has such a clarity that speaks to my brain mm-hmm. um there's there's no uncertainty here as with so many of the encounters that we read where you just you don't even know what the author intended to happen let alone true certainty of how you should run it or whatever it's, it's just a, a here you get so much you know what's supposed to happen the why there's this setup that ends with a what's next. Like, I, 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 this speaks to me. The, the terrain matters, right? Features of the area. The, and that all of this encouraged authors to create these fun bits. Like, what should your fun tactics be? Mm-hmm. It, they should be fun tactics. So right. make it fun. Uh, the features should matter. What do you, do you have, you know, some brush? Do you have stones? Do you have a cart that can be flipped over? You know? And that encouraged very creative type of play. Um, I know it wasn't for everybody, but but I I really enjoyed it, and it was fun reading this. And just I, I don't think I've read a fourth edition 
uh, encounter like this in a long time. And it, yeah. it brought back many fond memories. It, it did. And, and like I said, it, it showed how you can explain the game, not just the general rules, but sort of the more detailed parts of it, you know, in a very clear, concise and helpful manner mm-hmm. by focusing yeah. on those encounters uh, so closely. So uh, after that uh, brief encounter with the Kobolds, you are, can now continue on to the town that you were heading for originally to do the thing that you were hooked by earlier. And so we get DM's advice on handling scenes between combats. <laughs> and, and again, you know, really good advice uh, about moving scenes along, about asking leading questions. Right. Here's just one, a couple small sentences, but they say so much. If you, meaning the DM, do not remain alert to what your players are thinking, action around the table can slow. If everyone stops talking and looks at you, you need to jump in and ask what the players want to do next. Your questions tell players that something is expected of them. And, you know, I have been at tables where the DM did not understand this, right? The DM just sort of sat there and looked at the players and the players didn't know what to do, started talking to each other, started getting off topic and all just a very simple question or a summary of you. Okay. The last kobold fell. uh, Where do you want to go now? What do you want to do now? Can keep things on track. So it may seem if you're an experienced DM, it it's almost second nature, but being told this is so important uh, if you're a new, a new DM coming into a new rule set. And I think even as an experienced DM, sometimes you, you, you're like, am I doing things in a really weird way? Do other DMs do this? You know, yeah. am I alone? And, and so when you read these notes, it's sort of reinforcement of, oh, okay, yeah, those things do work for me. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's healthy for everybody. And it, it, it's, right. it's a... It's a mistake to think, oh, lots of my DMs or readers already know this. I think it's, it's yeah. positive to add this. I love the non-scripted options piece that just talks about, hey, you know, maybe they, even though it says in the previous encounter, they all fight to the death. You know, what if they capture one? Right. Here's what might happen. And it gives you an example of it. And as the idea of you running with it, if something mm-hmm. goes off script, how do you work with it? And that's, that's yeah. great stuff. Yep. Yep. So all of that's there. And then we get to the town. Now, we have seen this lots of times in previous adventures that we've talked about, right? There is an encounter or you just arrive at the beginning of the adventure in the town. So how is this handled? It's handled very well. Uh, The first thing I loved was that there are limited places where the characters can go. It's a walled town in the middle of a bunch of farms. Mm -hmm. So there aren't you know, 45 different locations, naming every farmer uh, at each location. It, every location is described well and has a role to play in the game, which, Mm -hmm. which is nicely limiting in a good way. Yeah. They, they, um, I mean, it's both a knock and a benefit. It's one certainly I can let's say I can live with how they'd handle, which is that they bring everybody to the tavern and they make the the, the public house 
a focus of the adventure because all the all the NPCs that matter basically show up here. Mm -hmm. The sage shows shows up here. The mayor shows up here. If you, if they're not there and you want to go get them, you can go to their, to their places. But they all come here, mm -hmm. um, and so that's great because everybody's here and it simplifies things. It also is maybe a little boring at times. You know, I, I miss a little bit the approach like in Hamlet where you want to go to the church of Saint Cuthbert to talk right. to the priest or. There is a market every other day, um, and that's a sort of another little minor knock I have that I see this a lot in adventures where they'll say, you know, there is a shop. You can buy most of the items uh, from these player handbook tables, and it costs, you know, the same or maybe a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, really? Like, what fifth edition character is shopping for rope? But, you know, it's all in your kit anyway. You're, yeah. Like, you don't need anything. Starting in third edition, you sort of don't need to buy anything. Right. So it's not attractive. So why would you come to this market, right? And yeah. if you're going to have a market and you want people to come, there needs to be a reason. It's true. It's true. I mean, the only thing I've seen people go for is holy water. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's even then, that's that's a sort of something that was only really, really useful in previous editions. So I think yeah, we have a little... Very low levels. Yeah, we have a, a little hangover of of that. Uh, for yeah. previous editions. One thing I liked was the characters are arriving uh, for a variety of reasons, depending on the hook. They could be looking for Tuvenstal, the their former master. They could be uh, just doing research on different things that are happening in the area. And not only do you get the NPCs who could help them, the NPCs are quoted after the question that the characters might ask. And I wouldn't want this to be in every single adventure, but I think for a first time play, DMing for this, a first adventure in a, in a, uh, an addition. I love this. Yeah. Because you can see right up front who knows what. Uh, and if one of the NPCs say is a spy, uh, you know, what information they're going to provide based on their particular desires for what they want to happen. So I think that's well. Yeah. There is a spy. Exactly. And there are some cases where the spy is quoted saying things that are trying to kind of carry out what the spy wants to happen rather than whatever the truth might be. Exactly. And that might be a little tough for a game master to make up on the fly. Whereas if it's given right there in a very short paragraph um, it teaches the game master how to handle NPC interactions when there are specific questions that the uh, characters are trying to get information from. It's a nice technique. It does force you to make sure that your questions are sort of obvious, straightforward mm -hmm. so that you can answer them within those where, where I've seen this really fail is when people have a question that could uh, be asked in many different ways or parts. And so the topics can kind of cross over and then you end up with answers that are in various places. Like more yeah. than one question may apply more than one answer may apply and trying to mix those all together. Now you're looking in different places for it. Mm -hmm. This adventure is very careful about what questions it's putting out there what answers it's giving so that it's all in one place and it works, but it's a, it's a tough thing to get right. Yep. Now from here, things spread out a bit. 
Um, there are different ways that a character could go. The main dungeon is the keep on the Shadowfell, of course. But there are other areas and other things that the characters may be enticed or decide to uh, investigate. So there is this cobalt threat that the players have learned about firsthand by being attacked. So the mayor of the town may ask them to, to go end that threat, and they, they're given directions to a lair. Uh, the missing explorer that they might be coming to seek is at a dragon burial site, so they may head off in that direction. Or they may want to go directly to the keep once they learn about its mysterious history. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is the first time we've had a a combat encounter. We've had some role playing. This is the first time now where the DM and the characters may decide which direction to go. And there's no wrong direction. It's just, uh, it's just that choice that, uh, you know, any game, any role playing game might have. Yeah. And regardless of what choice you're going to have an interlude uh, fight um, because you leave town and, and the way this is all set up and it's explained with the DM well, um, you're, the, the evil has been, the, the, the evil behind all of this has trained the kobolds. You've got to keep a lookout for anybody who might oppose us. Mm-hmm. And if they do anything or they get away, you've got to go after them. And so the kobolds, that they realize that one ambush went wrong, their kobolds don't come back, they set up another ambush to take you out. So it feels a little repetitive, but it's for a reason, because this is kind of executing on their plan. Uh, And we get slightly different kobolds, because of course it's fourth edition, so you have slightly different versions of kobolds, which makes it fun and interesting. Um, Yep. And one of the things that you can do, it's not in the adventure, but I would add it, is the kobolds that attack in the second ambush are going to have a note written in draconic in their language that gives a description of the characters because the spy in town knows what they look like. And as soon as the characters arrive, the spy may say, Oh, we have, we have a threat in town, send it off. And so these kobolds would have that. So if you can give vague hints that somebody in town must have told them uh, based on the, based on the conversation, Right. Mm-hmm. The note if the characters decide we're heading off to the dragon burial site and say that in town, the note may say, Look out for these people, they're heading towards the dragon burial site. Well, how did they know that? The only place we told said that was at <laughs> uh, Rafton's Inn. Uh, so therefore someone at Rafton's must have leaked this information. And that it. gives you a role playing hook for later. Mm-hmm. Uh so Yep, so we have the ambush, and then there are three places, as we said. Uh, we'll start with the Cobalt Lair, because that is the next thing that they talk about in the adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is, it's not a law, it's not a large layer. Uh, there's an outside layer, uh, outside the layer with a waterfall, a uh, couple of Cobalts outside, and then there's an inside layer where most of the Cobalts are residing. Uh this, when it first came out, was a deadly, deadly fight. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, our group basically had a... I, I think our DM may have helped us avoid the TPK with Iron Tooth. And part of the problem was that yeah. I think the stats for Iron Tooth alone, as printed, which is what you'll find in the free download, he alone can take on your party, right. let alone the waves of minions and others. And so it was very, I think when we saw Iron Tooth, we were already bleeding profusely, doing okay, but Iron Tooth was just absurdly powerful. Yeah. Um, so the, the 
Wizards actually on their website. I don't know if they still do, but uh, they have a, they had a free download of uh, what I would call a patch to the stats. Yeah, yeah it, it was. I played it. I ran it, and it was it was pretty vicious in in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is still uh, still fun to to play for sure, and you can learn a little bit about. Uh, yeah, at the end you can get some treasure and then you can learn a little bit about the situation because um, there's a note addressed to Iron Tooth, the, the goblin leader uh, from Calorel, who talks about having a spy in Winterhaven and, and so on. So that is something to, uh, that's again, cool uh, role-playing wise later and, you know, very good for D and D. One thing that's funny, it's it's kind of throughout this whole first part of the adventure, is that they'll have things like the goblin leader, upon being struck a death blow, you know, Iron Tooth cries out, Kalaral and Lord Orcus, prepare my way. To which I go, does he do that in goblin? Right. And the same thing with kobolds, the kobolds sort of shout things. Well, the kobolds only speak draconic right but it is it isn't clarified and that's the kind of thing that i'm like whoever wrote this i don't think they kind of remembered like wait a minute i gotta tell you what language it's in because you may just it may be meaningless to the party right yeah and the other thing that was kind of odd is that there's a goblin leading kobolds uh it it always i i understand why uh right it's supposed to link to the next piece right but But it is just it was just sort of odd the other thing to remember Um, uh, once once you get going, if you run a fourth edition adventure, is magic items were meant to be ubiquitous because yeah. rather than having your proficiency bonus increase automatically, basically, it expected you to gain magic items which sort of sort of play the role of your proficiency bonus in in fifth edition. So do, definitely do not give out magic items as freely as it calls for in a fourth edition game. Yeah, yeah. If you convert it, that's an important piece. And yeah. and they're not just, you know, it's not like like all these will be like a it's a plus one magic armor, but it also has a daily power that lets you you know spend a healing surge and regain hit points, and and so they they all have fun pieces. And I do remember that about playing early fourth edition, being like, oh, it does this cool thing too. Oh, great! Yeah. And you, you know, it really felt like candy, right? Because not only yeah. is it a stat boost, but you have this tactical use of this thing that was great yeah but in fifth edition you can't do too much of that you will (laughs) blow away the encounters yeah and if you see a fifth edition player with a bunch of cards in front of them sort of flipping them over like spells it's likely that they got that from fourth edition because you almost needed that in fourth edition to keep track of everything you could do at lower levels it wasn't as prevalent but it was still uh, almost encouraged because it was easier to flip over or tap a card to know that was an encounter power versus a daily power versus a power that you could use at will. Um, and then you got those same cards to show you the powers that the magic items had. So by the time you reached even like sixth or seventh level, you had a whole array of cards in front of you to represent all of the different things that you could do on your turn uh, in and combat. Think- I think Warhammer had sort of done that before fourth edition, if I recall correctly. And, and I think that may have been influential. I've, I've never heard one way or the other, but, yeah. but I, you know, it wasn't the first RPG to come up with this idea. Um, but, yeah. but, uh, which, you know, it can be fun. It can also feel a little bit, yeah. 
like it's not a character it's a set of cards and, and yeah. so that can turn people off for sure yeah yeah it's it's a good but resource i, I do have. say yeah. i will say that for any edition i love giving out a handout that is your magic item Yep. And, and I find that across any edition that works really well to remind players, hey, you got this cool thing and here's what it does. You know, I've given it to you right? and that feels special. Yep. So so the other uh, site you can go to that's not the main dungeon is the Dragon Burial site uh, where an excavation is taking place. And uh, again, uh, a, a nice combat here, a two-page spread with some humans, a a guard drake uh and a gnome and a halfling are are excavating this place and your your mentor if you're looking for uh them are are here and uh again a, a nice little combat the it's the, fine I, the, the I, terrain I is Sean, interesting to me this was sort of a weak it's not bad but right. it, it's sort of like the prisoner doesn't have a lot of information yep kind of only super matters to you if you have that mentor hook right they're digging up a thing that theoretically ostensibly is helpful but doesn't actually serve any purpose in the ritual yeah i, I kind of wish this were a little more yeah you know mattered a little more to the story but it's fine right. it's a little very quick side thing and that's fine yeah it is yeah it is. yep you can tie it you can find ways to make it more interesting right these these creatures uh may have been sent by calorel to dig it up to find some information or find some artifacts that could be useful, right? You can, you can do some things with right. it. And the next section we get is exactly that, right? It's DM's advice, add more story. Mm-hmm. And it gives you some pretty good information uh, on how to, how to play NPCs, how to paint a scene. So it make, to make it memorable and how to make up your own stories. Uh, yeah. so it, you know, it gives you that sort of background and then there's the interlude, uh, before you go to the, uh, the keep itself. Um, like, okay, you just learned some more things. You, you go back to Winterhaven. Uh, is this where there, there's an attack? No, that's after the, no, uh, that's later. That's but later. they have a yeah. fun thing here that I like, which is that there is this sage in town and the sage initially knows actually everything the PCs would like to know. I mm-hmm. thought this was clever the way they do yeah. this. And but they the the sage doesn't know, you know, are these adventurers actually good people? They might be crap. So I'm, yeah. I'm not going to tell them. Right. So they say um to you to the party they'll say I I'll I'll do some research and see what I can find out about this keep while you do these other things. So then when you come back and you've now defeated, you know, kobolds and various other things, that's when the sage will say to you you know, here's what I found out about it, but it's really what they always knew. And you might be able to, you know, insight that and so on. But, um, yeah. but I thought that was a, a clever way of, of doing it that sort of fits in with the story. And, 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 you know, maybe you can convince them beforehand to tell you more, but it's good. And so that a lot of the interlude here is sort of that, hey, maybe there are cults operating and here is the story of the keep, which is actually not the true story completely of the keep, but it's right. the story that everybody knows, which is yeah. kind of fun. Yeah. And that's always, it is fun to have that. This is what people think happens. So they say it, you as the DM know what really happens. And as long as that information can come out organically, it, it is, uh, it bolsters the story. Oh, we were told this, but this is really the truth. Now yeah. we know as much as anyone else. And in fact, we know more. And it's hard to appreciate how well this adventure does that because it's really hard to get 
across layers of information. That's a, that's a really tough thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I think the authors here really knock it out of the park with how the townsfolk sort of are reluctant to talk about it and only know a certain thing about that. Then right. other NPCs know more Then one NPC can tell you what they think is the full story. And then later you can get the additional last piece, yeah. which creates a really, it, it's nice. It's, it, you can see how it plays out in a movie this way to sort of have the, the random person tell you a certain thing. And then right. yeah, more and more it's, it's really elegantly done. Yeah. <laughs> like a, a big part of this is this night called Sir Keegan, who. Uh, was in charge of Shadowfell Keep, and uh, what you're told is he sort of lost his mind because of the magic of the area, and he ended up attacking everyone, including his family, and then was killed. And you will later learn, because you will meet his ghost, that that's not what happened per se. Uh, uh, yeah. So, so you can you know you get the real story. And then, yeah it, cool. yeah, it does like a typical adventure, right? It gives you the background uh, that you might know. You approach the, the keep. It gives you a good description. Um, then you get the real story of what's going on. Uh, and being fourth edition, there is one page. There's two levels to, to the uh, Shadowfell Keep. Level one, you get the overview, one page. And that's what I was talking about earlier with, mm-hmm. you know, the, the two sentences of what's in area one, two sentences of what's in area two. Uh, so the whole uh, level is handled in just one page of text. Then what follows after the map is each area's encounter spelled out in a two page spread. And I really, I'm, I'm impressed by this. You know, fourth edition sort of has this reputation where a dungeon would be reduced to like three rooms. Mm-hmm. Right. And that right. the dungeons sort of vanish. Like Rob Schwab even wrote a famous article uh, about sort of the demise of the dungeon in fourth edition. Yeah. Um, but but here we have a dungeon that's as big as any dungeon you would find in any fifth edition product or AD&D mm-hmm. product. You know, it's not a mega dungeon, but it's 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 yeah. a big dungeon with lots of rooms and lots of things going on. And I almost feel like keep on the shadow fell. I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I'm going to say is now. Mm hmm. Keep on the Shadowfell feels like what fourth edition was intended to be, and somehow they lost the blueprints to this kind of an adventure, yeah. and ended up kind of as as it got out from the hands of the immediate people that had designed it. Then you ended up with these things like these, you know, three room dungeons mm-hmm. when there right. was no reason for them to only be three room dungeons, right? Right. Yeah, and and the the three room dungeon was wasn't in and of itself bad. It was a way to write a nice four-hour adventure without, uh, you know, without trying to make it too large. It, mm-hmm. it it catered to a certain play style or certain lifestyle of we need to. I want to play, but I I can't play this. You know, the, the encounters, D and D encounters. Right. Uh, right. The the wasn't the Adventures League then. Uh, but, you know, the RPGA yeah. play sort of necessitated that and it did become more prevalent than it may have intended to. Um, you know, even D&D encounters, when you added up all the encounters in a session, you right. know, again, it was not a three room dungeon. It would be a very large experience. Right. But like this place has 11 rooms of which many of the rooms you could break up into many sub rooms. So it's, it's even larger than 11. And that's just yeah. level one. So right. it's, it's interesting to see. Yeah. And yeah, since we're jumping ahead, what 
what came from this focus on encounters as two-page spreads and delving down deep into them was that what was neglected were role-playing and exploration. Not neglected because they were still there, but neglected as thinking about them as encounters in and of themselves. Yeah. So, you know, there was this, there was always a two page spread for the encounters, but there wasn't the same sort of care and technical expertise given to role-playing or given to exploration. So that was sort of neglected a bit. And the rules were so good that the rules sort of, uh, demanded the focus of play because that was that was the best part of the game yeah and and when it's done well which here it generally is you have the pillars are there because they're wrapped into the two-page spread they're components of it right so there are interesting features to deal with there are strange you know runes in the crypt of shadows that are on the ground and so you want to engage with those and there are you know bahamut statues in the other place and so on so there's a, a lot of stuff with which to explore and engage with and there actually is a surprising amount of role playing as well but as you said it's not done on its own and so if a, an author comes along that doesn't take that same level of care to involve all the pillars you suddenly have a three-room dungeon where all three rooms are just slugfests mm-hmm. and they're, you're not tickling those other parts of the human brain and that's where it all really falls apart. Yeah. And, and it's not easy to see if you don't know what you've missed out on, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we get, as Teo said, sort of an 11-room first level separated into three sections. One where, with the goblins where they live and work and you know, do their jobs for Calorel. You get the undead area of the tombs. Uh, this is where the undead are beginning to waken because of the ritual being done by Calorel in the level below. Which, I mean, come on, really, paladins? You thought it would be really cool to bury your people there because you'd perform daily rituals to keep their bodies from rising? Like, bad idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely was. And then the the third area is sort of the cavern of natural beasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you could divide it up in that in that sense. Uh, you know, they had there were the Kruthik was uh, introduced there. Mm-hmm. You know, rat swarms and ooze uh, and so on. Yeah, and I'm it, impressed with how the dynamic these encounters are. Like there's a torture chamber and the famous goblin Splug, who was yeah. uh, made famous by Acquisitions Incorporated and became a, a villain uh, in that campaign as part of their, their play through this adventure. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot there. And again, like, you know, it's a two page combat spread, but Splug will call out to you and, and pledge to help you and may or may not mean what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that creates that kind of role-playing and other pieces. Uh, there's a goblin leader who you might come one way and find him asleep mm-hmm. and just slay him. Mm-hmm. Or you might come another way and wake him and he will actually probably try to escape because he cares nothing about the rest of his gang. And so, again, there's, there's a lot of richness here that can result in play going one way or the other. Mm-hmm. So if you clear the first level, the adventure sort of assumes that you will return to town, level up, 
rest. When you return to town, uh, because the ritual is continuing below you, undead are starting to rise from the grave. Uh, And there is a pretty neat encounter with the spy that was in town, uh, springing a trap, attacking, uh, and a, a fun way to break up the monotony of a dungeon delve while still uh, having an interesting focused combat. Another thing I like here that's really well done is that the village, you know, at first is sort of like, who are you? Right. And by now, it's, it specifically tells the DM, hey, the village is cheering on the heroes when they leave. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. really a nice touch to sort of rem- to focus on that changing role yep. relationship between them. That's great. And then the, if the party goes back, they get to go through level two, which has, you know, the typical monsters you expect as you level. Hobgoblins instead of goblins. Mm-hmm. Uh, gelatinous cube, ghouls instead of zombies or skeletons. Uh, and then the, one of the greatest things of Forthy were those big uh, set piece encounters with yeah. with the with the main villain and so much going on, so many moving pieces, uh, lots and lots of monsters because you had minions that could really clog up a room, but then be cleared out quickly in a really cinematic way. Yeah, those last two rooms each have a poster map, and it's you have the uh, Cathedral of Shadow, which is above uh, the Shadow Rift itself. And there is a grate in the center of the room that sort of blood is being released into. And you, the heroes can at any point climb down these bloody chains. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a lot in this adventure that can be very dangerous to split the party, but it kind of encourages that. So there's a little clay scout that has been sort of eluding you probably. And when you start this adventure, it sort of darts down through that hole, which is what lets you know, hey, I should go down there which you may do while still in combat. And if you do that, that's a very terrible idea because yeah. you don't have to do it for the the adventure to work. And in fact, now you'll be splitting the party and it'll be really tough, but, yeah. but it's an option and yeah, it's fun. Yeah. And uh, so I'm not going to spoil the last, the last couple of encounters, but you know, you get your, your first taste of a hazard as opposed to a creature. Mm-hmm. The hazard has a stat block. Uh, so you can't kill the hazard. The hazard is there as long as the villains are there. And uh, so it brings that exploration pillar in, into play uh, uh, as, as a new sort of threat. And lots and of I moving love- parts. Yeah, and the moving parts have synergies. And that's what's sort of fun. So there is a thing where a villain can go to a place that brings you into contact with that hazard and the hazard can interact in a way such that you can't easily get to the villain or you're drawing right. opportunity attacks. And, and that sort of synergy and cleverness was something that, you know, the more that you could use that as an author, as a DM, the better the scenario could be. And your players would have a lot of, Oh, Oh, this is what's going on. Oh, yeah. how do I counter this? Wait, what if I do this and then that, and yep. you know, and, and so you've got to play your own games of, of that nature too, which could be really rewarding. Yep. Those tactical puzzles within mm-hmm. combats for me, count as puzzles. And not only do they count as puzzles, they're actually, for most people, much more preferable than a actual, you know, do a Sudoku or, 
you know, do do this as part of a puzzle uh, in a in a D and D game because it it engages the character as much as it engages the player. Yeah. So, uh, so and then of course you know you 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 beat the uh, you beat Calarel. Congratulations! You are now fourth level. Uh, you are lauded by the townsfolk, and you can continue by doing whatever else you want because now new DM who is just getting into fifth edition or fourth edition, you uh, have all the tools you need to make your own stuff or go on to adventure P2, uh, which was uh, under Spire. Yeah. It's, it says what's next. Uh, the, 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 uh, Slender Spire Labyrinth. Labyrinth. Yep. Yeah. And uh, so a nice adventure path started uh, through this adventure. So, uh, overall thoughts. I mean, I was surprised at how much I liked this uh, and how good it was compared to some of the bad reputation that fourth edition adventures often get. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this adventure would would be rated highly in any edition. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it does that's fourth edition based, it does so ex- exceedingly well. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Mike, uh, not Mike, uh, Chris Sims did write a an official document about converting 4e adventures to 5e um now there are things to be aware of we already mentioned uh the fact that there was so much treasure Mm -hmm. and the fact that there were different kinds of kobolds and different kinds of goblins whereas and we're getting that now especially through Mm -hmm. third party uh material but you know we had cobalt dragon shields and cobalt minions and cobalt worm priests and cobalt slingers in the basic rules. Uh, we don't have that now. So you'd have to sort of uh, massage that material a bit to, to make it worthwhile. Yeah. And I think you want to, because what, what that does is it makes a fight with kobolds really interesting. Mm-hmm. And like you said, that tactical puzzle, you know, your brain kind of going like, Oh, this guy's going to always shift away from me trying to attack with its sling. But if I pin him down, then that's I'm ruining their day. Right. And so fifth edition won't give you that with just one kobold. You know, you're not going to get that rich of an experience, but you can use a different monster that the kobolds are working with. Mm-hmm. And now that will yeah. serve a bit more in that way. So. Yeah. So yeah, very, very good adventure. Highly suggest if you've never played or seen fourth edition to get that free version uh, mm-hmm. from from the DMs guild and you can Give it a quick read through and uh, look look at the rules and the adventure that follows. Yep. And with that, we will bid you all adieu. Thank you so much for listening, as always. And thank you to our patrons who help us by giving us a bit of coin here and there to uh, pay for how we do this. If you would like to become a patron of the show, if you are enjoying listening to us, you can give us that same coin by going to patreon.com slash MMP. You've been doing a lot of work on your blog and videos and so on, Mr. Abadia. Tell us about that. Thank you. I try. I try. Uh, I'm inspired by what we're talking about here, which thank you to everybody giving us all these positive, uh, all the positive feedback on on how you're enjoying the, the look at classic adventures. 
Um, I wrote about why classic adventures offer characters meaningless death, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was something you brought up yep. uh, and, and talking about the show after we were recording one time. And, and so I, I'm looking at that on alphastream.org and folks there can, can get involved there. Uh, and then, yeah, the, the YouTube, um, I, I put up a, an update to the adventure tools that you can get through my Patreon. And then um, the guide on how to get your free Roll20. So I'll keep doing that. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome. How about you, Sean? Uh, I'm not doing that much work uh, compared to you in terms of free stuff. That's yeah. not true. I, I know you're doing a ton with the upcoming Ghostfire setting. Yep, yep. Ghostfire Gaming is keeping me very busy, so I appreciate that. But you can follow me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. Uh, you can also go and follow the podcast itself on Twitter at MasteringDND. Uh, we also are on YouTube. You don't see our smiling faces, but you hear our sultry voices, and you can uh, listen and comment there as well. We've been getting a lot of nice uh, YouTube comments, so keep that up. Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, we've delved into fourth edition. We've braved Shadowfell Keep. What are we going to do now? Uh, let's help that tavern keeper kill the orcas in the basement. Orcus in the basement. It's like rats in the basement. Like rats in the basement, but much, much, 